Turn to First Samuel as we uh, sort of getting settled in First Samuel. Just had our first sermon in it last week as we sort of were getting situated to the, the environment of the Old Testament again after being in the New for quite a while. If you do not have a Bible, there sh- there could be one. There should be one in the row in front of you under the seats you can grab and and use that this morning. Again, we're in First Samuel chapter one. We're going to be looking at verses 4 uh, through 28, the entirety of the chapter. And before we uh, read it, uh, just to remind you of where we are in redemptive history. Where are we in the Bible? If you recall last week, we talked about that this is really the... First uh, Samuel is the hinge where we turn from the, the time of the judges to the time of the kings. Where we go from these um, more of a where Israel was more of these collection of tribes, to a monarchy, where they were all under one king, and they were a united kingdom. And then we see how that eventually ends up with the divided kingdom, and then ultimately exile. But, but in First Samuel, as we go from Judges, this was a dark period. This was a, not a good time. Um, and Ruth, as, as well, give, gives hints at that, that this was not a good time morally, for, for the nation of Israel, spiritually, it was not a good time. They had gone through these cycles of having judges and idolatry and judges and idolatry and falling down into the same pit. And so we wonder, what's God going to do? How is he going to get Israel out of this? And we see in First Samuel chapter 1 that he begins in a very... Um, out-of-the-way place, in a very normal, small family in Israel. Nothing special about them. Um, in fact, they had many difficulties. But it's in these circumstances that God can use um, common people to do miraculous things. So we're going to look more at uh, Hannah and her family and, and this family that Samuel is born into as we look at chapter 1. Um, I'm going to have you uh, just remain seated as we read God's Word. This is God's holy word. On the day uh, when Elkanah sacrificed, he, he would give portions to Penina his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. 
But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. And they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And he said, and she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. Would you please join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths of your gospel, that you use all kinds of circumstances to do your will and to bring good news. We thank you for the faith of Hannah in this text that, we, that, that is modeled for us. Would be, we be encouraged by it uh, and help us to grow Holy Spirit, do a work in your people this morning as we hear your word. Father, we thank you for the promise that your word is not returned void. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, our passage this morning puts on display a, a godly woman. And no, I'm not talking about my godly wife, though she shares the same name. We're talking about Hannah, the wife of Elkanah, mother of Samuel. And we're going to see Hannah's faith on display in three ways. Through her anguish, her vow, and her resolve. We're going to see her faith displayed in those three ways. So in this text this morning, Hannah teaches us that faith in God can help us endure through suffering and anguish. Faith in God can strengthen us to ask big things of God. And faith in God can help us to follow through and committing our lives to him. So we'll look again at her anguish, at her vow, and her resolve. So first, her anguish. Look at verses 4 and following. We see that uh, on this day, this particular day, that the family is at Shiloh. Remember, they live about 15, I'm not exactly sure, 15 to 20 miles from Shiloh. They live in Ramah, so they're traveling back and forth as we read in chapter 1. Now they're in Shiloh to worship there. 
Um, they were required, men were required to go up to Shiloh several times throughout the year to offer sacrifices and to worship. And so Elkanah would bring his entire family uh, with him. And we learn something very important in verse 5 that, of what God is up to. Right? As we read these narrative texts, always be looking for what God is doing and where he is and, and, and what he's up to. In verse 5 it says, But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. So the fact that she was childless was not an accident. It's very clear that God is in control, that he is sovereign over Hannah's womb. For for us, that's a very quick application point, isn't it? That, That God is in control of every inch of our lives. He rules and reigns over it all. So let that sink in for a moment as you think about your own life, as you think about Hannah's story, that the Lord had closed her womb. The Lord is in control over every inch of our lives. Now that is is what we're we're told the narrator is saying, but we're not sure if that's necessarily what Elkanah believes or or Hannah. I think as we see her prayer in chapter 2, we do that she believes in the sovereignty of God over her life. So he's in control over this, and she's in anguish over this. This is, this is troubling uh, for her, right? This, we talked about that last week, that barrenness for women in the Old Testament was really difficult for really two main reasons. So the husband, the shame that it brought to the family when you didn't, have, when you didn't bear children, and then also not participating right, in, in the covenant promises of the, of the coming Messiah. The second reason of her anguish is the family dynamic. You can probably pick up on what's going on, the difficulty, especially between her and Penina, this other wife. But first, let's note that this is a religious family. This is a pious family. They, they are traveling. Elkanah is taking his family to go worship several times a year. There was true piety in this family, yet it was a sinful family. Elkanah was probably, had, had probably moderate wealth. For him to be able to have two wives, uh, because he probably took on Penina as a wife because Hannah was not providing children. So he probably had a certain amount of wealth because he could take care of two wives and children. So, so he was a pious man. This was a pious family, and they would travel there. But for us, as we think about this, being in a godly though imperfect family, does not protect us from tough times given by the hand of God. Just because you are a religious family, just because you go to church, just because you offer sacrifices if you're in the Old Testament, doesn't protect you from living in a fallen world and from God giving you difficult things. There is discord. There is misunderstanding. There is friction in all families. It's not a new problem. This is an old problem. So as we think about this, think, think about your own families, right? We've got Thanksgiving coming up in a little bit. Think about some of the, the family dynamics you struggle with, some of the, the hard and difficult conversations you sometimes have with people in your family. We, we struggle in our families, don't we? But isn't it refreshing, as we think of our own family tensions, to see God using a normal, sinful family to do great things through that he's, blessed, he's going to bless the entire nation through Elkanah's family and see these dynamics, these struggles, these sins that they're dealing with. 
What's ironic about the family, all families, it's where we find the greatest security in life, but it's also where some of the worst abuses take place, isn't it? Right? Greatest security can be found in the family, right? If you've ruined your life, if you've gone off, you've, you've, you've wrecked your life, you can always count on your family to take you back in. So think about a family that they have to take you back in, right? They're, they're family. But it's also where some of the most abuses can happen in your life, sadly, where the most shame can be felt and difficulties take place. And we see that with her and Penina. You look at verses 6. And seven, and her rival, that's speaking of Penina, this other wife, her rival, he calls her, used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. So you have Penina, who has many children, And she's taunting and ridiculing Hannah day after day, making her angry for being childless, right? You can imagine the conversations that were going on between Penina and Hannah, where Penina is rubbing it in her face. And it's it's reminiscent, if you if you remember, of Genesis between Sarah and Hagar. Right? We get these stories where we realize polygamy does not work out. This should not be practiced. Right? We see why. It's difficult. And you know what? Penina was actually probably taunting and accusing and provoking Hannah because she probably had insecurities herself because did you read in the text who was the favorite? It was Hannah, right? Elkanah had Hannah as his favorite and Penina knew that. And so to get back at her, she would provoke her. But we see what this does ultimately to Hannah. It, It tears her up. So it went on year by year, verse 7, as often as she went up, she used to provoke her, Hannah wept and would not eat. And listen to Elkanah's response. Her husband said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Elkanah, interesting, interesting response, right? Basically saying, Aren't I such a great husband? You should love me and you don't, need, you don't need children. Aren't I great? He's kind of aloof, isn't he? He's not quite compassionate or understanding. He shows this lack of compassion that Eli at the temple, the tabernacle, is going to also show her. And as we think about this, men especially, if you're married, we often struggle to emotionally connect with our wives, don't we? He's, it's like he's saying, are you... Are you able, well, we should ask ourselves if you're married, are you able to just sit with your wife and love her enough to weep and pray with her instead of trying to fix the problem? Right? We're fixers, men. We want to fix the issue. Right? We want to solve the problem. But we sometimes lack the emotional IQ, right? the ability to connect, the ability to weep and pray and be with her and to show we care. And Elkanah's doing the same thing. He's like, why, are you so, why aren't you eating? Why are you so sad? Aren't, aren't I more than ten sons, Hannah, to you? But what Hannah is showing um, is that she's enduring through this suffering and her faith is allowing her to do that. And it's going to lead her to the tabernacle. 
for you kids here, especially this morning, if you like Pilgrim's Progress, there's actually a great animated version on Amazon. If, if, if you uh, are into that, Amazon and uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Great, great book as well. You should read it. But John Bunyan, I don't know if you knew this, but he wrote many of his books from jail. He was actually jailed for not preaching what the church at the time told him to preach. Uh, and he was, he was attempting to stay biblical and, and preach Christ preached from the Bible, but he was jailed for about 13 years, and he wrote most of his books from a jail cell, not able to support his wife or kids, separated from them because of his faith. And he wrote these great works. And he said this, something interesting about about the trouble and suffering and anguish he was going through. He said, I could pray for greater trouble for the greater comfort's sake. That he was receiving comfort in the midst of his trouble, in the midst of his being imprisoned. He was receiving comfort. And so he would say, the comfort I receive in my trouble, I want more and more of that comfort. So it's like he's praying for greater trouble. I could pray for greater trouble for the greater comfort's sake. Colin Hansen writing about this says, again, you can't always know how God is going to reveal himself. That We don't know, but can be sure that Nowhere is beyond his sight and nowhere is beyond his reach. Nowhere is beyond his sight, no difficulty that you endure. There is no suffering that is beyond his sight and his reach. So to endure for a lifetime as a believer, we look for Christ in even the dark and dismal corners. You see, my inclination, our inclination, is to lose hope when life is too much. When the, when the burden and the weight is just too much, we often lose hope. But that's not what Hannah does. She, as we read in verse 9, she rose and she heads to the, to the tabernacle. Look at verse 9 following with me. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. And now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Don't pass over that verse that Hannah rose. It, in her grief, in her anguish, she was driven to prayer. So now we're going to look at Hannah's vow. We looked at her anguish, now we're looking at her vow. What's important here is that Hannah moved toward the place where God was. That her faith in the midst of the suffering led her closer to God. You ever heard it said that God won't give you more than you can handle? He actually does. And he does that to draw you into prayer to be with him. God gave Hannah too much. Gave her too much to handle. So what does that do? It draws her closer to him. Look at verse 10 with me. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She was deeply distressed and prayed bitterly. To the Lord, deeply distressed. Literally in the Hebrew, it's, it reads bitterness of soul. That her soul was bitter. Have you ever felt that way? You just don't. You're not feeling good at all, and the deepest part of you feels bitter. One commentator says Hannah's prayer reveals her conscious, intimate relationship with God, and she prayed and wept bitterly. Do you ever combine those two things? Prayer and weeping. Prayer and weeping. Sometimes those are the, the best prayers you've ever had, right? Where you've, you've been praying and you're, because you're crying. 
because you're grieving over your situation and your loss and your suffering. Don't separate those two. If, if you're weeping, don't think you, you have to get yourself cleaned up. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis says, There is a myth circulating around the church that often goes like this, that believers in the Old Testament period didn't have the freedom and the personal approach in prayer that we do. Their worship consisted of a very external, formal, cut-and-dry, sacrificial procedure in which ritual killed off any spontaneity or intense spirituality. Well, Hannah would say that that is hogwash. Once you see Hannah in prayer, how can you doubt that she has found the same throne of grace and knows something of the same boldness that we have today? Christians then should allow Hannah to be our schoolmistress, to lead us to Christ, to instruct us in communion with God. Many Christians need to realize that Yahweh our God allows us to do this, to pour our griefs and sobs and perplexities at His feet. Our Lord can handle our tears. It won't make Him nervous or ill at ease if you unload your distress at His feet. Have you ever weeped or or really shown your emotion towards someone and you could tell things got awkward? We're sometimes not able to handle the level of emotion we see with grieving people. But God isn't like that. God doesn't act awkward around our tears and our emotion and our sadnesses. He embraces it. He embraces it. He can handle our tears. So in the midst of affliction... What do you do in the midst of grief, in the midst of suffering? Do you do what Hannah did? Do you run toward the Lord? Do you rise up and you head to the place of prayer and to commune with God? Or do you run to drink and food and entertainment, to numb yourself, to comfort yourself? Things that aren't God. Friends, you don't have to be happy and peaceful to pray to God. Don't think that you have to make yourself uh, joyful when you're feeling sad before you can pray to God. No, go to Him in your, in your grief. And secondly, do you see prayer as the most powerful tool that you have to not only change your circumstances, because God can do all things, but lead you to the greatest source of joy imaginable, God Himself. Prayer is this powerful tool, most powerful tool, to go to the Lord of hosts and say, Lord, I'm struggling. I need you to change this in my life. And also, grant me your joy, because you, Father, are joy itself. So Hannah does that. She rises up, and she heads to the tabernacle, and she vows this vow. Look at verse 11. We're going to look at her vow And in her vow, she has three main requests, and then she has a promise, something that she's going to do. Let's look at her vow. She says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, and then I will give to him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch him. Head. So look at her request in the first part, that, that she asked God to look on the affliction of your servant. 
what she's asking for there is important. She's asking for God's face to shine upon her. She's asking for a benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face to shine upon you. She's asking for a deeper sense of, of communion with the Lord, that he hasn't forgotten her. Look at the second request. Remember me and not forget your servant. She wants God's face, but she also wants his thoughts, his cares, to acknowledge where she is and how she's struggling, to be with him. It's important. And then she says she would like to have a son. Will you give to your servant a son and I will give him to the Lord? Now notice she begins all this by saying, qualifying it, right? By saying if. She's not demanding this. She understands that God can do what he will, do what he wants. She might get a, a son, she might not. It's up to God. But she's saying, God, make your face, make your thoughts tangible to me. Make it real. And this is the desire of my heart. God loves to give us the desires of our hearts if they're aligned with his will. So she's qualifying it. If, if uh, you would do this to give me a son. She's not demanding. And then she says, I will promise to do this, that I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life that I'll give him back to you, God. So you might have a question in your mind, why in the world would Hannah give back to God the very gift she asked for? Right? This is the one thing that would make her life extremely happy, this, this son. And she's saying, I'm going to give him back to you, God. Why would she do that? It seems backwards, doesn't it? Well, it's because of this. Because the child, or, or the lack of a child, wasn't her only hope in life and in death. That having this baby was not her deepest hope. Her true desire was to glorify God. That she wanted to know that God was near. It's as if Hannah was saying, above all, help me to desire you, my maker and husband, worth far more than any, many children or any other desire, that you are the most worthy of my adoration at all times, Help me to worship and hope in you alone. Child or without a child. That Hannah knew that the suffering and the anguish God had prepared for her to endure was designed to draw her closer to him. That her greatest need was not a baby, but to know the love of her God and community. That was her greatest need. And so she commits to this vow that she will uh, give him to the Lord and, and that, she, that he would serve the Lord his whole life. And we see this shortened version of the Nazarite vow that he would, uh, a, no razor would touch his head. That's the Nazarite vow, the same one that Samson had and the same one that we believe John the Baptist took as well. The parents take it for the child that he would serve the Lord. And so he would serve the Lord his entire life and that's what she vowed. That I'll give him back to you. The next scene we have here is that she uh, is praying before the Lord in verse 12, and Eli sees her. And she continued praying, verse 12, before the Lord. Eli observed her mouth, and Hannah was speaking in her heart, but only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. See, this was also a time of, the, of a festival, right? So it probably wasn't Eli's first experience with a drunk person 
uh, sort of coming from the, the festival area and then coming to the, the tabernacle, right, drunk. This probably has happened or had happened. And so Eli was assuming this was just another drunk person coming to the tabernacle. So that's what he took her to be. He says, uh, he says how long, verse 14, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. And she says in verse 15, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, which was probably a type of beer. But I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. So she's, in, she's kind of doing a play on words. She's saying, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not pouring many drinks. I'm pouring out my soul before the Lord. I'm troubled. I'm distressed. So he hears her. And she says, don't regard your servant as worthless, this worthless woman. For all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And then Eli answered, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made him. We're going to see how Eli falls short in a lot of ways. But right, right here is probably the best thing he does is that he gives her a benediction. He says, go in peace. Shalom. And God grant you your petition. But do you notice the, the phrase for God he uses? That his, his benediction actually falls short of Hannah's faith. That she takes on the name of the Lord of hosts when she prays. The Lord of hosts. The, 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 when you see L-O-R-D in your Bibles capitalized, that is the word for Yahweh. This covenant uh, relational term that he uses for his people. But, but Eli has this sort of distanced phrase. He says, God of Israel. May the God of Israel grant you your petition. But he's not using the same term. I think we're already getting hints that even the priesthood here is struggling. That they don't even have, he, Eli doesn't even have this sense of closeness to God that Hannah does. She has this close relationship and intimacy with her Lord where his faith is shallow and weak. Hannah's is resolute and strong. And so she's asking these big things of God, right? Things that she thinks are, will never happen, could never happen, but she's still laying it at God's feet. And it, it teaches us to expect great things for God or, or ask big things, great things for God. Do you do that? Do you bare your soul to God and say, I know this seems impossible. I know this person in my life is not saved and it seems like they'll never be saved. Will you save them, Lord? Will you open their eyes? And we see things going in a, a certain trajectory for people and, or habits that, or sins that we struggle with our entire lives. Do we lay them at God's feet? And this is a big thing for us, right? But it's a minor thing for God to do. He's all powerful. And so like Hannah, we need to ask these big things of God. I know we talk about um, rejecting the prosperity gospel, but do we also reject the scarcity gospel? This gospel that... God will not do anything. He cannot do anything. That, we are, that we're only called to this life of suffering and we should never ask for him to relieve our suffering or to do great things. Don't, don't buy into that scarcity gospel either. So we've looked, at, we've looked at her vow, but now we're going to turn to finally her resolve. We're going to see her resolve in verses 19 through 28. Verse 19, they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. So there they are, still in Shiloh. But then they went back to their house in Ramah. 
And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And Samuel literally means to ask of the Lord. And so we see God be faithful, right? He, he, he loves his daughter Hannah, and he blesses her with Samuel. And so, as she does that, she sticks to her promise. She sticks with her vow that she's going to give this back, this, this boy back to the Lord. She says in verse 22, As soon as the child is weaned, I'll bring him up so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. She's going to make good on her vow. She's not going to turn back on God. And so what amazing faith that Hannah shows as she gives away the gift of a son after being barren her whole life. And we read about this in Exodus 22, that we are to uh, present our children to give our firstborns over to God. Not literally, but at least figuratively. Exodus 22 says, You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses, the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me, God says. And so what Hannah does in practice, we're required to do in principle as God's people. That we're to put all of our children whether physical or spiritual, in God's hands. We're to hand them over to the Lord. And that is, um, there's difficulty in that, isn't it? Trusting our kids into the Lord's hands. Michael Horton, writing in his book, Recovering Our Sanity, says this, Tell me what you fear the most, and it's fairly easy to discern what idolatry you're prone to, what you fear the most. My greatest fear is the future of my kids, he writes. Will they know the Lord? Because of this fear, I have sometimes behaved irrationally. If my wife Lisa and I just catechize them, take them to church twice on the Lord's Day, are consistent in evening devotions, and check a few other boxes, it will work, right? It's like if you put in a dollar, press A7, and a Snickers bar drops. I can say that I trust in God's faithfulness to keep his promises but i'm still living against the grain of reality right so even as christian families as we do all these things to make sure our kids stay in line follow the the rules and become good christians we're still trusting in our methods it's still easy to do that to say if i just check these boxes god's got to be faithful right no it's, it's ultimately up to him and parenting is, is impossible without the Lord working in our kids' hearts. And so the difference often lies in what we say we believe and how we live. Isn't that true? We say we believe certain things. We just confessed the Nicene Creed this morning. But how we live, do we live according to that? Knowing God's sovereign and in control and good to his people. And more so, what controls our minds, our fears, And what causes us to grow anxious as we think about our kids, especially, and giving them over to the Lord. And what this this picture of Hannah giving Samuel over to the Lord, we see that, that's a great theme in Scripture. Giving your, your kid as this offering to the Lord. We see that literally playing out with Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22. And in Hebrews 11, it speaks about this. It says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. 
And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. See, the difficulty Abraham was having was that God said, Isaac, the, the promise was going to go through Isaac, yet he's telling me to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. Lord, are you serious? Is this what you really want me to do? He was going to go through with it. He considered, it says hey, Hebrews 11, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And so for Abraham, the, que- the question was, do you trust God to fulfill his promises? And again, we, we hear that verse in Exodus 22 that we're to give the firstborns of our sons. You shall give to me, the Lord says. And at all points, Abraham and Isaac points to the cross. That it was God himself who sent his only son to the cross for you and me. That John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Just like Hannah and her only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So, so we see that Samuel is this little picture in the Old Testament of Jesus. We read in 1 John 4, 9 that in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Right? That God, God gave up his son so that we could live. And we also find Christ not just looking at this picture of Samuel who's been offered up, but in, in Eli, this, this interesting character who we see um, is not this great paradigm of righteousness. That's what we see in narratives, actually, in the Old Testament. You see godly people who struggle. Right, we're going to see King David, this paradigm king who sins in really awful ways. And we're going to see bad people as well do good things. And that, isn't that just like, like life? We see this mixture of good and bad. But we see what Eli says. Go back to verse 17. Where he says, Eli answered, go in peace to Hannah. And the God of Israel grant your petition you've made to him. What's interesting is that those three words, go in peace, that shalom. Those same words are expressed only twice in the New Testament. And it's from the mouth of Jesus. To two different hopeless, broken women who stepped out in faith. Remember, I read these two passages earlier this, this morning where Jesus is at this uh, dinner with Simon and other Pharisees. And this woman of the city uh, comes and she's, she's weeping. And she's been involved in all sorts of sin and, and sin against her. And she has shame in her life. But she steps out in faith and worships Jesus, pours this ointment on his feet, cries tears on his feet and wipes her, his feet with her hair. And what does he say? Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And she is this picture of being forgiven and loving much. And we also get this second scene in Luke 8 where this woman has had this discharge of blood for 12 years. She's been to so many physicians, spent her life savings on medical treatment and still not healed. And she gets this opportunity to just touch, grab his cloak in this crowd as the crowd is pressing in on him. And she's healed immediately. And people are wondering, or Jesus is wondering, who touched me? Obviously, he knew who touched me. He, just, he does that. He limits himself so, we can, uh, so he plays along with us. But he says, someone touched me so, because I received, perceived that power had gone out from me. 
The woman saw she was not hid, and she came trembling and falling down. She declared in the presence of all the people why she touched him and how she had immediately been healed. Daughter, he said, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So you see, what Eli says to Hannah is the same thing Jesus says to these women who were dealing with shame, difficulty, anguish, and suffering. That they are to go in peace. And shalom, that word for peace in the Old Testament, is... That's the great hope of all saints. Peace. Isn't that what we hope for in our own lives, in our own, and what we pray for? And so these words of Eli to to Hannah, go in peace, um, that offers her hope. And her whole countenance changes, doesn't it? She believed what he said, and she began to eat again, and she went home. And so in closing, faith in God can help us follow through in committing our lives to him. If you're on the fence about, should I really commit my life to Christ? Should I really follow Him? You need to keep that in mind, that He is with you and that He's powerful. Have you committed your life to Him this morning? Does it help you by knowing that if you believe and trust in Christ, that He's already committed Himself to you? And He proved that by shedding His own blood, dying and rising again from the dead. He proved that to you already. That's a God that I can commit my whole life to. That's a God I can commit my whole family to, all my, my whole career, all my hopes and my dreams. Would you do that with me, will you? Let's pray, let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for the faith of Hannah. Shows us um, what it's like to not have to clean ourselves up before we come to you, but being driven by the despair, difficulty, and anguish that we've experienced in life, we can come to you freely, and you hear our prayer. And we thank you that she received those blessed words, go in peace, that Jesus, you spoke to those women who were, had nowhere else to turn, and life had just become too much for them. So when life becomes too much for us, and we pray that it it would happen because we need to be driven away from our own pride and our own uh, abilities to act righteous on our own. We need the righteousness of Christ. So hold us up by your power, Lord, and teach us to rely and trust on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.